Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Episode 22 is a continuation of episode 21. So prior to proceeding ahead, I kindly request you to listen to episode 21 first. Thank you. I think we'll be taking jump directly into now the drug trafficking and its connection with the terrorism. So as you know jump into this topic I'm I'm a bit curious about this because I have been hearing this from a lot of documentaries uh, from my experience working in the satellite sector uh, because in satellite industry uh, we uh are providing now a lot of services uh for you know to counter illegal activities in the seas especially which involves you know uh kind of uh, piracy and uh, drug trafficking as well and i'm mm-hmm. i'm a bit curious to know you know uh like the behind the scene of what happens and what are the motivations of this group so from your perspective what does the how does the i mean how does the relationship between global drug trafficking and terrorism manifest in real world examples such as the connection between drug cartels and terrorist groups in countries like you know possibly uh, any kind of you know asian or latin american countries so what sure. is your perspective on this well i mean it's kind of interesting uh you know trafficking routes are so lucrative and so competitive that they necessitate militarization i mean the most extreme example we have in the world today is the uh Jalisco new generation cartel in mexico which actually operates like a state within a state uh including having full military equipment and uniforms um you know you mentioned uh in in uh in in your briefing you'd sent to me about uh you know, ties between Mexico and Colombia. It's very interesting how the Mexican cartels actually emerged um, as the key traffickers, kind of, a, kind of junior partners to the Colombian cartels, and that that relationship has now switched. Uh, the Mexican cartels, like the Sinaloa and CJNG, who is going to be a generation, um, have formed competing alliances with uh, various Colombian uh resistance or some often labeled terrorist groups such as the ELN and FARC um but it goes much much broader than that on a global scale uh ultimately whether it's a drug cartel or a criminal group or or a terror group um they both operate in opposition in one way or another to the state and are both seeking out uh some form of power and power is it, it comes from from wealth and so it's very easy for a terror group uh to get involved in these uh trafficking uh routes it, or or in the production and sale of narcotics uh simply as a means of revenue 
Um, in fact, it's a very important means of revenue and they, it, it doesn't mean that they have to go and seek partners from competing states, et cetera, et cetera, which always leads to, uh, you know, unre unreliable partners. It's a, it's a, it's a basically a domestic source of revenue. All right. Yep. I think we are coming to that point, uh, because I'm, I'm very much curious to, you know, possibly, uh, look to this topic in terms of, you know, what are the key, uh, motivations of all this group? So from your perspectives, like, uh, the motivations or the incentives for terrorist organizations, what are those exactly to engage in drug trafficking, particularly in regions like Afghanistan, uh, because this region has been historically related to the opium trade. And I think it is still very much highly active region. I think some of, I think when we look at the, you know, terror groups, um, particularly, you know, uh, Islamist groups uh, and drugs, it's it's kind of a proof of uh, that that money trumps ideology. Uh, the Taliban for many years have been vocally against the use and distribution of narcotics. Uh, in fact, the Taliban are the only uh, group in the history of Afghanistan that actually successfully stamped out opium production uh, just in the years, in the in the brief years leading up to uh, the U.S. invasion, where opium uh, production just proliferated thereafter. Uh, but I think there's little question at this point, though the Taliban still deny it uh, now that they have a press office, uh, that the Taliban used the opium trade to... Uh, to fund its war with the United States, they deny it, but I think it's the proof is pretty much, uh, pretty much in the cards. And mm -hmm. it was very successful. I mean, uh, the proliferation of uh, of uh, opium uh, sales. I mean, you know, the the, the the it contributed to the opioid epidemic in the United States uh, until the rise of you know synthetic opioids, which is since uh, you know, displaced uh, traditional heroin, um, but we're seeing we're seeing a, a reversal or, or or a reassertion of former policies. The Taliban has now declared its own war on drugs and uh, and declared uh, poppy production illegal under Sharia law, and uh, we're seeing now a ninety percent reduction in in uh, poppy production in Helmand province. Uh, and they're replacing it with, uh, you know, lower profit wheat fields. This has created a huge backlash from farmers and probably other members of the Taliban uh, who gain a lot of revenue from this. Uh, so it's interesting to see how how this will play out. Um, but in a the bottom line is is that when a country doesn't have access to international sources of revenue and it doesn't have dollars coming in uh it's got to get those dollars from illicit sources somewhere and the easiest way to do that is narcotics trafficking north yes. korea has also been involved uh in the trafficking of narcotics through its through its naval vessels uh for for the exact same reasons all right okay and in what way does the illicit uh, drug trade provide a significant source of 
funding and financial support for terrorist activities in conflict zones like Syria and its links to drug production and distribution. Syria is an interesting example because um, the rise of the Captagon trade uh, is primarily tied to the Syrian state, which has become a total international pariah uh, since uh, the Arab Spring. Um, it's Captagon is a uh, very powerful amphetamine that became popular in the Gulf states a few years ago. It's known as the poor man's cocaine. Uh, now the uh, the you know largest Captagon uh, production centers are in the coastal regions that are controlled by uh, the Assad regime and operated by companies that are tied to uh, or outright owned by uh, you know Assad or his uh, his associates. Um, so again, it's it's very clear. Uh, how states can become involved in narco trafficking when they're when they're pushed against the wall. Um, a lot of uh, the, the international response of this has been interesting, where both uh, the Jordanians and the Emiratis are seeking to kind of ignore uh, this aspect of uh, the Assad regime and uh, are normalizing relations to some degree with Damascus uh, and. That might actually be the thing that dissuades, uh, you know, the regime from taking part in this because it's highly risky. You know, when you when you do this, it increases the chance of global sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and also puts you on a, you know, on a on a puts a target on your back for, uh, you know, the, in the international communities. So, um, if relations are normalized, you may see a move away from this. But there's no sign that uh, that the Syrian regime is moving away from this anytime soon. All right. Okay. That's that's interesting. And how does the symbiotic relationship between drug trafficking and terrorism pose unique challenges for countries like Pakistan, uh, where groups like Taliban have profited from narcotics trade routes, as you mentioned previously? Yeah. Uh, well, Pakistan is Pakistan's border with Afghanistan is a, is a porous one, and uh, the traffickers out of Afghanistan. Uh, would primarily use Pakistan as their means to get uh, get their drugs onto the open market internationally by uh, you know making use of uh, the port of Karachi and uh, and you know strategic airports and things within the country. Um, it has had pretty broad ranging uh, consequences. I mean, you know, the most obvious is that you have uh, you know wealthy armed criminal terrorist groups operating within the state. Uh, and that has led to a whole host of security concerns. Uh, there's also evidence, or at least evidence to suggest that uh, the Pakistani military is involved in this trade at, a, at quite a high level, uh, including at the uh, you know elite inner services intelligence or ISI level. Um, and that, that really further complicates matters. I mean, we see militaries get involved in drug trafficking uh internationally it 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 becomes it morphs into uh you know a nearly unstoppable force at that point all right okay and uh from your perspective i mean uh as you mentioned this all the points uh about you know even the internal agencies getting involved so what are the 
consequences of the intertwining of drug trafficking and terrorism for countries like west african nations uh, for example nigeria mali where drug smuggling networks and extremist groups have formed like i would say possibly dangerous alliances yes yes uh i think that um when you're looking at uh the countries of the sahel uh you're dealing i mean pakistan i wouldn't call a strong state but you're dealing with it with even much weaker states uh uh in in these regions and uh west africa has become a, a critical trafficking route uh starting in the 2000s uh when it became the primary route by which uh, cocaine reached the european market in fact uh south american cocaine's primary market is now europe and not the united states because it's much easier to uh to traffic into europe through these routes and it's also uh you know the us is a much more lucrative heroin market at this point um so typically it's you know it's a, it's a broad desert region uh you know difficult to traverse and you know the product to be put on trucks and brought up to the mediterranean coast through various means uh it, there was a lot of competition between uh various groups and they became militarized in the process uh in order to protect and expand their market share this led to a ton of violence in uh places like Mali um and uh that is one of the primary factors that led to the uh to the to the total instability we see today that has since been capitalized by the uh, Islamic state insurgency which now uh operates just at, at, with at least some level of complicity with these groups and uh is uh striking back at uh at the state and its enemies with, with pretty brutal force and is now spread into Burkina Faso which is uh the um kind of epicenter of this conflict at this point so it's it's spreading very quickly um the toppling of the Gaddafi regime in Libya also made it much easier to uh get these narcotics up to the Mediterranean coast and onto boats uh to hit the European markets so um it's a uh yeah it's a very uh very um very complex uh issue uh that um that i think you know one that you can show that the the drug trade has had a direct destabilizing impact on on the region yeah. and it's it's funny that the the similarities when you look at um the rise of the crack epidemic in the united states um it was a very similar thing in the in the major inner cities where uh you know the people the, you know the traffickers of crack cocaine uh were militarizing themselves and the violence just got completely out of control uh by the late 80s and early 90s uh it it has a destate you know the, the trafficking industry has a destabilizing impact wherever it touches you know it doesn't matter which part of the world it is interesting yep i think i have been looking at this issue from more from you know the space industry's perspective where uh we as i said uh, the industry is you know now gradually progressing and you know developing solutions technology solutions to counter these issues especially in the maritime domain where i think the drug trafficking and the smuggling is very much common uh, especially in the uh, arabian sea and the asian uh, indian ocean region i would say so yes the, uh, the go- oh sorry Uh, just, uh, yeah yeah, the, the Gulf, yeah 
Right. Sure. The, the Gulf of Guinea is another uh, is another area where piracy has really taken off. And it's through the Gulf of Guinea that a lot of uh, trafficking uh, is initiated into Europe. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's been international efforts to combat piracy in that region. Uh, and you've seen, uh, you know, international uh, navies getting involved, specifically European and, and the United States. But uh, it's it's almost impossible to police them, uh, especially where, you know, when there's various withdrawals at different points, it just flares up again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I was unaware about the coast of Guinea, but uh, yeah, thank you for this insight. Uh, and I, I believe like the government's response to these issues, uh, I'm not sure from the other side, but I think from the technology mm -hmm. side, I think the governments are becoming increasingly aware now that, you know, uh the trafficking smuggling i think at the end you know somewhere it affects the economy at a much more higher level i mean the cost yes. of goods the consumer goods that we have in our uh, on our table on everyday life it's the so cost that, of yeah. those goods is increased because of these issues but there's a direct correlation i think like it's interesting you mentioned that i mean when you look at you know if trafficking or piracy uh, or terrorism become an issue in any maritime region, the shipping insurance rates in a conflict zone uh, skyrocket. And so ships either don't go there or the cost of goods goes up exponentially. Uh, and that can cripple local economies and uh, lead to uh, higher prices of goods around the world. It's a, it's a direct correlation, yeah. Yes. I think that's that's exactly the reason we are now focused on space applications uh, to counter these issues in trafficking and smuggling, I would say, especially in the maritime domain, because uh, I think the uh, shipping industry now has uh, quite a lot of common standard as compared to what it was having uh, like 50 or 60 years ago. And mm -hmm. I believe like this satellite industry, especially the earth satellite based earth observation imageries, satellite imageries, I would say in a, in a layman's term, is something that is helping the governments. And I, I believe, uh, firstly, it is very much important to educate the government about how the satellite applications will help them counter these issues. So, you know, on the same lines, I would say not from the space industry's perspective, but in general terms, how do government response uh, response to drug trafficking and counterterrorism efforts? Because I believe these two issues, counterterrorism and drug trafficking, interact and influence each other in several countries like Afghanistan, especially. So, what is your mm -hmm. perspective on this? Well, like I said, the the Afghan government has been uh, under the Taliban has been seems to be on a pretty successful campaign to uh, eliminate uh, poppy production, uh, and it seemed but again, they're not a unified entity uh, and it's difficult to say what the outcome will be, but I mean, if they were able to do it in 96 to 98, uh, it's uh, it's possible that they could achieve it again, though they didn't have quite the security. They just had the Northern Alliance to deal with. They didn't have a, uh, the ISKP insurgency to deal with then. Uh, so I guess it's uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think, you know, the the goal of countries when they do it domestically is uh ultimately economic in nature because you know yes they are stamping out one source of revenue 
but they're ultimately trying to uh, ingratiate themselves, I think, to the international community. You know, uh, the uh, you know the studies during the Afghan war that showed that there were you know over a trillion dollars worth of uh, resources within the country uh, shows that there is the possibility for future foreign investment if the security situation. Uh, can be uh, remedied, and uh, the Taliban can deliver some kind of uh, some kind of uh, you know control over the country while improving its inter image internationally. And a big part of that would be not trafficking in heroin. Um, yes, but when you get down to like tar the targeting of trafficking groups, I mean, you know, the, the Afghans they can go after poppy production goods in an open field, but when you're dealing with you know, uh, lab created drugs and you're dealing with traffickers. I mean, they're, they're a lot harder to target and a military approach tends to be one of the absolute worst ways, uh, you can do that because militaries, they tend to operate, operate with a fair amount of impunity within the field. Um, they're given extraordinary powers, uh, and, uh, they're allowed to shoot and kill on the scene. Um, Obviously, that leads to uh, human rights issues and issues with uh, resistance within communities uh, and resentment, but it also increases the chances of complicity. Uh, if you just Google search, you know, military, you know, drug trafficking, I mean, you'll find a whole bunch of countries. I mean, you know, during the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the, 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 the Soviet and later the Russian military got involved in heroin trafficking. Uh, you have even countries like Canada, the US and the UK having uh, examples of trafficking within their ranks. So, um, you know, militaries operate, they have their own legal systems, their own courts, uh, and you have uh, people under very extreme circumstances in the field. And that can really lead to uh, to pretty disastrous consequences. That, if anything, just strengthen uh, the trafficking trade. I mean, I you know we look at the example in Mexico where they're using the military to combat drug traffickers now, and uh, you can just see how bad that could get. Uh, the, the deeper embedded the Mexican military gets into that conflict. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I think that there's a lot really that can go wrong. And I, the impact of law enforcement and uh, local governments can be very, very limited uh, in, in these efforts to, uh, to fight drug trafficking. I, I think that's the kind of the bottom line of it. All right. Okay. So, I mean, like, as you mentioned, all these things, have, uh, especially about the military action. So I'm a bit curious about the golden triangle. Uh, yes. Uh, what What are the? I mean, from your perspective, what are the international initiatives by multilateral institutions and strategies aimed at disrupting the nexus between drug trafficking and terrorism? And how effective have they been in countries like uh, Colombia, or I would say, especially the gold Golden Triangle region, which involves Myanmar, Thailand, Laos? Uh, also, yeah. uh, if you give a little bit context before answering the question about Golden Triangle. That would be great because we have uh, also an audience from the space industry uh, who are actually not, you know, much aware about okay. this security issue. So it would be great if we give a little bit context on Golden sure. Triangle as well. Um, I think the Columbia example, I mean, there was a huge sustained effort uh, on the part of uh, 
the Air Force in the country and the military to stamp out cocaine production. And the results, well, I mean, there was a record year cocaine production in 2020. So I think the results speak for themselves that that, that was not uh, a, a particularly successful uh, policy despite the amount of effort that went into it. Uh, the Golden Triangle, at least on the surface, presents a more uh, successful example. Uh, back in the early 90s, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, the UNODC, uh, brought various stakeholders together to address the issue. The UNODC is the uh, actually uh, the largest organization of its kind devoted to anti-drug efforts, though it doesn't have the ability to, uh, you know, enforce, uh, it doesn't have a law enforcement function. It's kind of serves as a, as a, as a dialogue option and a, and a way to facilitate cooperation between various countries and law enforcement agencies. And its budget is over $700 million, which is, uh, you know, nearly a fifth of the total UN budget. So it's, it's uh, fairly substantial. Um, it's like I said, it's some of its greatest success has been uh, started with the MOU between uh, China, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, and Cambodia in '93 uh, that specifically targeted trafficking in the Golden Triangle. Uh, mostly, uh, it's it, the biggest budgetary line item of these efforts was uh, a concerted ramp up in law enforcement efforts. Uh, and later, you saw uh, other partners such as Canada and Australia join into the MOU. Um, you know, in terms of just sheer numbers, the MOU was successful and it saw, um, you know, opium production in that region just drop off, you know, substantially uh, in the early 2000s. But when we look at the context, uh, the early 2000s are when, when Afghanistan emerged as the world's largest opium producer. So it's really... Uh, it's really a question of whether this was successful or whether uh, it, or whether the uh, you know centers of production merely shifted. Uh, it's also telling that since the uh, you know the instability that we're seeing in Myanmar now since the 2020 coup, uh, Myanmar uh, opium production has spiked and. Uh, and uh, it's now the world's second largest opium producer once again. So the, the Golden Triangle is actually becoming uh, an issue uh, either way. I think the, the bottom line is, of this is that the one thing that has remained a constant between the Golden Triangle and Afghanistan when it comes to heroin production is that there's always been a steady and growing supply of demand globally. And uh, as long as that's present, I, I don't know if it's possible to really stamp out production in one region uh, or stamp out production altogether other than focusing on one region over another. Okay. And I, I think, as you mentioned, like uh, the Golden Triangle is becoming uh, an issue, especially because of Myanmar and the things that are happening in the country since the uh, mm -hmm. past two, three years. So from your perspective, I would say, and your experience in the field, uh, what are the you know the process or procedures or i would say possible options where nations can you know enhance cooperation and coordination between their respective law enforcement agencies as well as the intelligence services so what efforts yeah. can potentially they take 
There's certainly uh, gaps in this. I mean, the Golden Triangle example showed that there was, you know, success in regional cooperation uh, to some degree, though, again, you know, we have to temper that with the context. Um, there's certainly gaps today where, uh, you know, U.S. law enforcement agencies regularly complain that their Mexican counterparts are not uh, sharing information with them. And there's been various breakdowns in the history of U.S.-Mexico uh, relations where, uh, you know, there was a, I, I forget the poor man's name, but it was a DEA, DEA agent in the 80s was uh, assassinated by uh, Mexican traffickers in uh, cooperation with uh, Mexican law enforcement. It was covered up. And that led to a to a breakdown in relations between the two countries on, in terms of law enforcement for over a decade. So, you know, when you have countries that aren't sharing information, uh, obviously there's going to be a lot of gaps in in policy uh, when it comes to law enforcement. But I think um, the biggest thing, the thing that has informed me uh, most, uh, there was a, I think it was 2005, a study by the Rand Corporation. Uh, came to a very, I, I guess, what would be seen as a radical uh, conclusion, in, you know, in terms of uh, Washington particularly, and that's that law enforcement is one of the least effective ways. They don't even mention the military because the military wasn't a factor really at the time, but, uh, you know, I think military would, would fall further down the list. Uh, but there was that law enforcement is one of the least effective ways to combat uh, drug trafficking and that the, the most effective ways were focused on the targeting of demand. There's a real question yeah. that, that, you know, this, you know, we talk about an opium, an opioid epidemic, you know, in, in Western countries, particularly in, in the United States and, and Canada to some extent. Um, what, are the conditions that are making our societies so prone to addiction? Um, I mean, you know, we have the issues where we talk about an epidemic of loneliness, where the U.S. Surgeon General talks about this. Uh, you know, people have called it a uniquely Western problem, but I don't think that that's the case. There are there are certainly uh, drug addiction issues around the world and mental health issues around the world. Um, until we really look deep within ourselves, I mean, I think there will always be some market for drugs and addiction within any society. But what is making us to the you know sick to the point that we're turning to drugs where average ordinary people are becoming uh, totally addicted? Uh, until we really start searching within ourselves and addressing this uh, this issue. I think that there's always going to be people out there who will capitalize on this market. It's like that scene in, in uh, Breaking Bad. I, if, if you or any of your view, viewers have seen it, yes. where you know Walter White is a you know he's a smart guy who's down on his luck. Uh, yeah. You know, like like so many people around the world, uh, you know, and he and <laughs> he sees a drug bust on television, and he asks his brother, who's in the brother-in-law, who's in the DEA, you know. How much money, you know, were, did they get? And yeah. He said some no figure like eighty thousand dollars, and the light you see the lights just go off in his head. Well, you know, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of potential Walter Whites out there, uh, and and they're all over the world. Uh, you know, when people see the opportunity to make money, and especially if they're desperate, they'll risk anything to get it. Uh, so th the question is, is you know, 
what are we going to do about this market? Do we, yes. do we even have, you know, I, I don't think the traditional means by which we're fighting this, we're going after supply, but it's a, it's a real function of, of demand. If you're looking at it from purely economic, from a, from a view of just as an economist. Yes. I think uh, I would say, uh, Adam, as you mentioned, such a, you know, a valid point. I think we really need to look uh, beyond, you know, uh, I think uh, as a trafficking or a racket or, you know, a cartel, you know, which is just operating uh, for the sake of, you know, because they want to do some criminal activities. Mm -hmm. I believe more than supply and demand, it is also the necessity and the opportunity that the people see out of, you know, the circumstances that they face in life as well. As you mentioned about the example about Breaking Bad, I mean, uh, the, the character in that uh, series, I believe, he's not he's not uh, addict, you know, uh, since his no. uh, birth. But I think the circumstances of life and the situation that he is in uh, forces him possibly, or you know, uh, manipulates him to do those things. And as you yeah. said, yeah, definitely there will be always a market for these issues. Uh, but I believe, of course, we cannot uh, eliminate hundred percent of it. But I believe yeah. uh, at least, you know, there can be some level of a reduction to it, uh, uh, if not, you know, full yeah. eradication. Because that's I mean, that's yeah. the reason we have investments in defense and security, because we don't expect uh, things to be, you know, 100% be normal, because there are several people in the world, billion people in the world, and everyone has different perspective. There will be conflict, and mm. it won't be, I, I, yeah, I, I think, yeah, proceeded, proceeded, yeah. Yeah, I, I think to be clear, I mean, the choices Walter Witt makes, I mean, are purely are, are, are evil. I think that and I, and I think if you look at, you know, in the same way that these drug cartels are are fundamentally yeah. evil. But the question is, is, you know, how much you know, there's evil, I think, within everyone, but how much evil are we willing to tolerate and empower? And, and when we when we uh, permit, you know, markets to proliferate you know and it's it's clear that putting addicts in jail doesn't work but you know yes. not offering you know the kind of supports needed to addicts and the, the kind of community yes. building that's needed to keep people from becoming addicts um we're making a bargain where we're saying we're allowing you know these these very bad criminals to become multi-billionaires and run uh run uh rackets that wreak havoc on our communities and on our on our the security of our daily lives yes definitely i think yeah you're right about this i believe uh, the last part of the topic was very interesting at least for me especially because uh you know working in the military satellite communications uh you know i've, I've been dealing on and off with these issues but uh this I think this last part of the conversation is something like uh, very much interesting to me because we went a little bit off topic from, you know, discussing what exactly is the drug trafficking, but looking at it from a much more human perspective, like what forces people, especially, you know, to take these steps and get into this mm -hmm. kind of businesses. So I believe definitely we'll, we, I would be very happy to, you know, have a conversation with you about uh, this topic uh, later in the future. A kind of a follow-up episode for sure. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah. But I think uh, we are now at the end of the uh, podcast. And 
so adam i would like to uh, generally frame a question for the students because uh, we have a quite a lot of audience from the student area uh, especially mm -hmm. the universities uh, research scholars there are some social clubs as well who listen to this podcast and the question is for them and uh, please feel free to answer it as, as per your uh, convenience uh, is about what are you, what is your message to the students and research scholars who are you know stepping into this field of research and studies related to maybe counterterrorism uh, conflict studies peace and uh, peace and conflict studies i would say and as sure. well as you know uh, criminal investigations too well, I think um, in any academic field, there's going to be, you're going to find a lot of people around you that are focused purely on theoretical, uh, theoretical approaches uh, and not so much on context. And I would argue that you need to take the exact opposite approach because every one of these theories is, is simply used to frame context. And if you don't have it, there's going to be a ton of blind spots. Everybody working in this field should know history, especially when you're applying it to a country that's not your own. Uh, you really need to just at least take one big book and read it cover to cover and know that country's history uh, and and think about it. Think about what it would what it would mean to to experience this at at various points. Um, the other thing is to never take anything for granted, never leave a stone left unturned, always be willing to challenge what you are told and what you believe, uh, because I, it, it, the amount of times that I think I've changed my opinion on something, uh, has, has been, you know, I, countless, but at the same time, I'm. I would not want to be one of those people that is just stalwartly believes one thing because it's comfortable, you know, um, because those people just don't, I don't think no offense, but they don't do good analysis. Um, the other thing is, is economics. Uh, you need to have a baseline understanding at least of, of macroeconomics. Uh, you need to look at the economic incentives behind what some of the even most ideologically radical decisions might be if anything just to have an antithesis in your mind that's very important you know to have a to put forth when you make a study or an or a report of any kind of analysis have a thesis statement like what is it that you're trying to prove and always be aware of and address if not fully disprove your antithesis when you when you go out and do that uh i think that's 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 the best advice i can give yes thank thank you very much uh, adam uh, for giving us your precious time i believe uh, thank you, you you bring in a lot of uh, expert level analysis uh, to this topic and though we had a very brief time i hope in the future we'll we'll be able to create a dedicated episode on this uh, specific issues uh Absolutely. so yeah Yes, uh, so definitely looking forward to having you again on the podcast. Thank you very much, yes, Adam. Thank you. thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. 
see you in the next episode thank you